are listening to Joygasm, a video game and movie podcast. I'm Ross Xbox Live Toaster 360. He is Steve, Xbox Live Stevevich. And it's a pleasure to entertain you in episode 155 today, January 8th, 2020. We have a fun show in store for you this evening. We are going to be catching up with each other before getting into... A personal letter sent to us by a fellow Patreon supporter. So we're going to be getting into the nitty gritty of what he had to say regarding one of our previous episodes. And then we're going to get into our topic of the day, which is what makes a good boss fight. And with that said, Steve, it's like I can feel you in my noggin with the sultry, velvety sound of your voice, but I can't actually see you because we're in two different places. Well, let me paint a picture here for you. I might as well just take a picture of what's going on and uh, send it to you so you can put it on friggin' Instagram because I have built a fort of cardboard (laughs) cotton uh, and and more cotton, I guess, because I got a blanket over my noggin to help with the um sound quality the the purity uh-huh. of my voice and uh-huh. above that or no surrounding that i have couch pillows to help oh. buffet the, the noise because it's going to go right through the blanket help to and then buffer oh yeah and then above that <laughs> i to have help warren buffett the sound <laughs> what and above that i have uh cardboard Ah, cardboard, yes. So it's kind of a makeshift uh, jerry-rigged studio. Mm-hmm. Well, in other words, you are having your very own personal Fortnite? <sighs> but I'm... Um, uh-huh. Uh-huh, uh-huh, Basically, uh-huh. I'm, I'm breathing in a lot of my recycled air. I don't know how much of this is going actually outside. Like, my <laughs> exhale is going right back into my brain. You're going to be loony in about 30 minutes. It's going to be great to hear your rationale and thought on the program. (laughs) Actually, you don't even need to send that to me. You can take a picture of yourself and post it on the Joygasm pages there, Steve. Yeah, maybe I'll do that. So uh, (laughs) what? Do that. (laughs) So, Steve. Yeah. I must say. It's a bit different being here and you there. I must say I miss your bald crumb dome. I know you do. Mm-hmm. And um, I miss the reflection of your computer screen reflecting off your glasses back at me. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Someday we will make our victorious reunion and it shall be Filled with lollipop smiles. Be wonderful. Nice. What is going on in your world, though, Steve? I want to know. I mean, obviously, you, you've been watching stuff. Have you been playing anything? Um, Actually, no. Uh, not since I got a little further in Skyward. Um, <laughs> I haven't played anything else besides Shining Force 2 on mobile. Oh, um, he's addicted once yes. more. Oh, yeah. As you shall be. Yes. Or should be. 
Uh, but now, other than that, I, I know I should be playing other stuff, but I ain't. You know, I'm uh, I'm entertaining the wife, making sure she's uh, getting her <laughs> entertainment as well as mine. No mm. pun intended there. <laughs> of course. I just have this like this visual of you like. You're like doing a little like 1920s like shuffle tap dance word. <laughs> it's more like the monkey with the like the the drum symbol and harmonica. <laughs> and you and you got that like permanent grimace on your face. Like <laughs> <laughs> you don't know if the monkey's having too much of a good time or is just playing psycho, you know? Your wife's like, hey, what are you doing over there? <laughs> what did I marry? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Ah, so continue, please. Uh, let's see. So I I got Alien and Aliens uh, in the mail. So we are we watched Alien and we are almost done with Aliens. Uh, so that's been awesome. And uh, did I tell you? Did I tell you last episode we watched Rocky Four? I did, didn't I? Or did I not? You did, yeah. I did, yeah. We're still on it. Uh, we still have to so- watch Rocky Five, but. What did you think of the first Alien movie? So I, I so far I'm liking the first Alien better than the second Alien. Uh, the only reason is because it, even though the, even though the second one I think uh, uh, Sigourney Reaver does a better job acting. Like I'm I'm really with her in, in this one. Um, it seems like in the second one, they go, oh, you know, we have these space marines in there and they're top notch. These guys know what they're doing. They're, they're the cream of the cream. And they all they have the, the most state-of-the-art weapons. And then you see this Marine Force like, yeah, yeah, I know. Let me give you a homie handshake. We're going to go blow up some bugs. Hey, brother. Hey, what's up, man? And you know, it's like, okay, did you guys just get off the surfboards in California and grab some boomsticks? Or are you actually trained as well as... <laughs> This official said you were. Um, I don't know. So well, you got to remember too that when the movie came out, it was the early '80s, and that was all about that kind of style. And not to mention the the type of tech that was in that movie was for its time. Uh, yeah, I guess. Russ. But it makes it more campy that way, you know. Like in, in today's world, you look at it, and, and there's a lot of stuff that's just laughable. But there's there's definitely a nostalgic classic. I don't know, just 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 a, a pop culture icon of a movie, you know? I hear that. I hear that, Ross. I just didn't expect it to be that campy. You know what I mean? The other thing, too, is that the directors were different. In the first film, that you had Ridley is Scott. In the that second film, you had James Cameron. They uh, On the rentable uh, Blu-ray, you can actually watch the original version versus the director's version. Oh. So we're watching the director's version of both films. Very cool. I'm glad that you you're you're finally able to see that because yeah, the, both those movies are heavily revered in the pop culture society. With uh, you know, there was both of those directors actually were um, a lot younger, and so those movies were a lot more raw. And you can tell that there were certain things about them that for the, well for its time actually worked out really well and were novel ideas. And then as you, if you think, if you think about like Ridley Scott's career or you think of James Cameron's career, you can tell how like they continue to polish 
some of their approaches to cinema and storytelling. And but but those those movies were like pretty early on in their careers. Right. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. What's nice too is that uh, now that the um, the family has left, we we don't have to be as considerate with the volume. Uh huh. So we can crank it. And it doesn't matter who we who we wake up because you know neighbors have their own insulation in their houses. They probably they, I don't know if they can hear us or not, but um, either way, um, we're enjoying a lot louder aliens than we otherwise would have. What did your wife think of him? I I, I think she's actually seen him before. Um, oh, because she's starting to predict stuff that's going to happen, and, and I'm looking at her. I'm like, oh, wait a second. How did you see this already? She's like, oh, I think I may. Like she, when I got the movie, she goes, oh, I haven't seen him. I've heard of him. I go, okay, great. And we start to watch him. She goes, she starts predicting everything. And I'm looking at her and she goes, I may have seen him. I'm like, nuts. All right. Well, I guess that's fine. Like, whatever, you know, but um, I haven't seen him. But she <laughs> didn't see to go, okay, this person. Yeah, they're actually going to be alive. Okay, why? watch. Okay, see, I told you. I'm like, great, thanks. She goes, okay, this person over here. Yeah, something bad's about to happen. I'm like, stop. <laughs> or maybe she is a byproduct of the conditioning through decades and decades of cinema that these directors introduced back in the day. So she, therefore, because they, they are a bit more at their beginning stages and having to be raw, she's able to easily predict what's going to happen. You never know, Steve. Possibly. You never know. Possibly. So but you, you said you didn't play anything? No, I, I didn't play anything. Not yet. Okay. This weekend, it's going to be different, but uh, I haven't played anything. Understandable. Well, I am in the same boat as you in the sense that I didn't play anything this past week. I, I did watch James Bond. Uh, I always forget what it's called. Spectre. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you recall, we had a conversation where we were talking about the upcoming James Bond film, and I couldn't recall if I had actually seen Spectre or not. The weird thing is, is um, I think I saw like half of it because when I was watching, I was like, yeah, actually, I remember this and this, but I don't remember that. And so I must have, I don't know if I was at a friend's house or what the deal was, but in any event, I'm just glad that I, I made time to check it out and... um just really set it set myself up for the the new movie that's coming out this year. Yeah, I'm glad too, Russ. I'm glad, I'm, I'm glad that you're glad because you saw it, didn't you? You saw Spectre. Yeah, I saw Spectre. Of course, I did. Yeah, you did. Yeah, I saw <clears throat> Spectre. There. God, I still can't believe it's going to be Daniel Craig's last hurrah. As... Still think he's making a mistake. Well, I, he's kind of getting old, isn't he? Doesn't matter. I think the first film he made for James Bond was 2006. Yeah, he's still walking, isn't he? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> how old? How old was uh, Sean Connery when he stopped making James Bond? Oh huh? man, um, he—I think he was pretty young. I don't know exactly what yeah. his age was, but I think he—you know—he probably put his cap on the rack there, probably in his—I don't know, forties, maybe something like that. Mm. Not exactly sure. You know, he still had some lead left in his pencil for the Rock. You know what I'm saying there? Bond, yes. James Bond. Shaken, not stirred. <laughs> I must be dreaming. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Do you fancy my Walter PPK? <laughs> <laughs> Where is my Aston Martin? <laughs> License to kill. 
I'm a secret agent. <laughs> it's really funny when you think of all those things. Like only he could pull that off. Where it's like, Ooh, yeah. it actually sounds so manly. <laughs> or that and the, the the kind of the snicker grin that he always has when he's speaking. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, Roger. Oh yeah, Charlie. Uh, so other than that, I have actually been busy with the the transition, um, which is the fact that this week I started my new job at 2K Games Silicon Valley. So that has been a whirlwind of a week, and everybody's been fantastic. I'm I actually have not met everybody on the team yet. I've met quite a few of them, and everybody's absolutely lovely and. I'm very much looking forward to being able to to work on this, this project with them and go on uh, hopefully what will be a nice long developmental journey. But it's it's pretty crazy to be back in the Bay Area. I think it's really cool to go down these roads. You know, you're going into the North Bay and the East Bay and uh, going into San Francisco. And uh, you, there's like a flood of memories that comes back. I was actually a little rusty on some of the highways because I hadn't, I think the last time I was there was for your wedding, but we really only stayed in the Marin area. We didn't really uh, go too far out of the beaten path, so to speak, but it was, it was fun. I got to, to pick up my car. It was fine. It was good. I picked up at a friend's house. So Billy, if you're listening, thank you very much for watching out for my car. By the way, I don't know if I told you this, Steve, but my battery was dead. Oh, what? Yeah, I go to pick up my car, and they were nice enough to actually make me dinner and that sort of thing, and that was fantastic. And it was it was probably around like ten o'clock or something at night, and I decided I was going to take my suitcases that I that I had brought with me during the flight and put them in my car. And so I did so, and I noticed that the trunk was actually not latched. It wasn't open, but like it certainly wasn't latched down. It wasn't locked. I was like, oh, I wonder what what, the, what caused that. And I was thinking it's probably when they um, exchange keys and, and either um, the driver or somebody was like, was trying to lock the car. I don't know. But anyway, I go, I try to uh, start the car and it will not start. I'm like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe this is happening. And luckily, Billy is quite the mechanic. The man is a handyman, let me tell you. And he happened to have one of those portable wheel out turnover type generator things. You know, you hook it up to your car and then uh, uh, you're able to get a charge and that sort of thing. So I was able to do that and made my way home. And then I was able to actually start it the next day after that. And it's been running fine ever since. But that was kind of the one like, uh oh, moment that I had <laughs> when I came out here. And luckily it was all all good after that. So. I've uh, just been getting settled into uh, the new job and been finding out what the project is. And my I, my, my lips are sealed, Steve. I, mm-hmm. I signed away my life to a litany of NDAs, and that's okay. But I'm here to tell you, Steve, that there is massive potential with this game. And hopefully uh, you'll be able to check it out in the not-too-distant future. But anyway, I'm very grateful and thankful for uh, the, the opportunity. And it is a bit of a sacrifice in the sense that my family is still in Texas. And so we have been FaceTiming it up like crazy during the week. 
being able to get some time in with my daughter as well as my wife and and even you, Steve. Get a little FaceTime with the old <clears throat> bros. See how you do it. You know what I'm saying? I know. Called us right in the middle of the movie. I get you. Oh, I know. <laughs> uh, I, I tend to do that. <laughs> so let us pivot to the message that we received. So earlier in the week, we received an email from uh, PJ and his son, who I believe his name is Trenton, if I'm not mistaken. Um, well, it says but, in the email there, Russ. I, I would venture to guess that'd be correct. Well, it has. I'm looking at the email. <clears throat> does it say his name? Does it say Tr- Trenton? Yes, it does. Oh, excellent. <laughs> Anyway, they uh, wanted to send us their feedback from our Star Wars Rise of Skywalker review, which, of course, if you guys are uh, interested, you can check out. It's only, I want to say, like two episodes back. Two episodes back and two hours long, baby. That's right. (laughs) And so this is really cool. I thought that we could go kind of chunk by chunk and read uh, out loud like just what it was that they had to say and then have ourselves comment on it uh, just because I think it's really cool that they took the time to be able to uh, write this. And this is this is a pretty in-depth email here. So I say let's get right into it. Let's jump into it. It starts off saying, hey, Russ and Steve, I listened to your podcast about Star Wars Rise of Skywalker with my son. We have a few things that I would like to clarify and give a different point of view. I would like to start by saying that The Last Jedi was a complete waste of time. Agreed. I hated it and will not support Ryan Johnson again, regardless of how great he was before. Here are a few things that my son Trenton and I were yelling at the the podcast. (laughs) That's that's when we know we, we, at least we've got some engagement, you know, like when we cause people to yell at our podcast. (laughs) Right. So number one, light speed skipping. He says, if you remember how many ties were chasing them, it was so many. They went to light speed and it went down by a lot. In the original trilogy, the Empire would be able to figure out uh, where the rebels were going, but it was a guess. So watching the number of ties they keep reducing in numbers after each jump, I think that this was a great concept and did not need to be fully gone over. From the second viewing, Finn is telling Poe not to do it again because Ray was not there. Also, we know that Poe is the best pilot from episode seven. So Poe is going to be able to do this with no problem. Steve, Mm -hmm. do you have any comments toward that? You know, I I, I see that that it's just, it's a cool concept, uh, the light speed skipping. um, And so I'm not necessarily knocking it as a concept, but I just don't think it, it, necessarily made sense. I know that that Poe was a great pilot, um, <clears throat> but he can't anticipate what's going to be in the way when he just light speed skips um, and doesn't have any sort of computer calculation of what he might hit or what he might not hit. Um, and so, I mean, yeah, it's a very risky thing. I, I think they went out way on a limb. And actually, I think also in the previous movie, they were saying how um, the TIE fighters can't go into light speed. So I don't know. I only, I didn't see that. I didn't, <laughs> at some point I got so angry at the the last movie, not, not, um, um, episode nine, but episode eight 
that I think I stopped paying attention, but I think that's a nugget that I do remember. Um, but anyhow, I didn't, I haven't watched that movie very many times for obvious reasons, but, um, I can only, I can, my blood pressure can only go so high. Exactly. Um, <laughs> but anyhow, definitely a cool concept. I, um, I just still think it's a, a bit of a stretch. And so when I, when I look at it, um, I, I actually really liked the the concept of like speed skipping. I think that, that that was really cool. My issue was they didn't really spend enough time with it because it, it was something that was such a novel idea and something that I actually welcome in the world of Star Wars. So for them to do it very quickly like that and then never explore it ever again, it, it is a bit of a bummer. Um, I, I am thankful that it did make it into the film. I would rather it be there than not at all. Um, and, and I think too, these movies, the way I interpret them is there is a, a certain amount of time that has passed f- between episodes. So like from episode seven to episode eight and from episode eight to episode nine, I don't view it as, as if like the curtain comes back up and it's right you know, the second after the previous movie finished. I think there has been some time, whether it's months or years, something like that, that's, that's in there. Not too many, mind you, but uh, for me, I think that that is why I'm willing to, to believe more of the light speed skipping being implemented into something like a TIE fighter. Simply because if you recall in episode four, the TIE fighter is a short range fighter. In fact, Ben Kenobi was the one who said that. And so we know that that due to the, that fact that there's no way that it would have any kind of light speed capability. They, they, they were completely reliant on the Star Destroyers to dock, you know, and that sort of thing. But having said that, perhaps in the time that has passed since episode four, maybe they have been able to come up with the technology. You, you never know. Did you have something else you were going to say, Steve? No, I was going to say, yeah, we never know because they, they didn't lead us on to believe that that was the case. We just have to assume that that's what that's the case the second item is that c3po mind wipe this was a great thing to do because he could not speak a forbidden language i can totally believe that he could not speak it remember remember that anakin made him back in episode one he was part of the senate in episode two three and the start of four working for bail organa In the movie, he said that he could not speak because of a Senate bill. C-3PO was cut off because Poe said he did not care. Steve said, and Steve meaning you, Steve, right? uh, said that he could not understand why he could not say the language. It makes sense that the Senate was controlled by the Sith and they would not um, allow any old protocol droid to read it and give away their plans. What say you to that, Steve? Uh, yeah, I can, I can accept that. Um, I would also think that with a level of technology, uh, they could take the valuable information that, uh, was stored on C-3PO and maybe transfer it to R2 because R2 can transfer information and it wouldn't have to be that big of an ordeal to go, Oh, we got to wipe C-3PO's memory. And then who knows how he's going to be afterward. He's not going to remember a single thing. Because they can take all the, the the good the the data they want to keep, give it to R two, wipe C three PO's brain, put the memory back on, done deal. There you go, the world of possibilities. The third item is that Lando, Luke, Leia, Han, and Chewie 
Uh, Lando was great, but I feel that we have had time to fall in love with him and the other characters. We had years of books, games, comics, and other media to fill in their backstories. There was never going to, uh, oh, they were never going to replace them with the new trilogy of characters. I feel that they tried to incorporate all the different aspects into each of the characters so that we could have any of them on the screen and be able to use them in multiple ways. Did it work? I have a mixed feeling about it. I do like getting more of Poe and Ray's background. I do like the fact that Finn was going to tell Ray that he is becoming force sensitive. I think that Finn being force sensitive is a great twist since he was a stormtrooper to start. So, and then and it kind of continues on, but there's, there's actually a lot of, uh, of details in here. Um, my thing, and I think Steve, you know, I'll, I'll answer this one. I think our beef was just that Lando was so limited in terms of his screen time in the movie. And I think one of the problems that we have had with the, this new trilogy is how the, the, the beloved characters were, were, were treated and how they were written uh, to kind of conclude themselves in the trilogy. And I think that, that we both wish that there was just a, a different approach overall to the whole thing. Um, and, and, and we understand too, and I'm speaking for you, Steve, so please correct me <laughs> yeah. if you don't agree here. Right. But um, I do completely anticipate there to be a next generation of characters, if you will. I just think that some of the decisions that were made in terms of the passing on of the torch were not executed as well as they could. Do you agree? Yeah, I would have liked to see this trilogy end with all the heroes that I've grown to love. And, um, I mean, just continually watch the movies over and over and over and over again. Um, I'd like to see them go out with, a heroic bang and not necessarily how they did. I just think they kind of wiped off the old characters, brought them back here and there for nostalgia's sake, and then just forced the new characters on us when they should have um, got introduced us to the new characters in a whole different new trilogy. Cause if we, if they started a new trilogy and then they go, Oh, here's Ray, here's Poe, here's Finn. Um, I think that would have been a lot different because we could have maybe not been limited to this trilogy, but they could have had a lot more time to expand on that, on, on that story. Yeah. He continues on saying that we are shown a promising start with episode seven, but it is thrown off course in episode eight with the new characters. I'm not very happy with the way that they handled Luke and Ray in episode eight, but understand what the underlying thought was. I never thought that the new characters were going to replace the original. To me, this trilogy was meant to be a passing of the torch to the next generation and beyond. Yep. Yep. I think we, we agree on that. Lando should not be, this is um, PJ talking, uh, be the head of the resistance and here is why. Number one, he was not going to go and see Leia because he was hiding out on some distant planet and was not looking out for anyone other than himself after Luke left. Number two, he was a general around the same age as Finn and Poe. The argument, well, here, let's start with number one here so we don't get too into the weeds here. Uh, when he said he was not going to go see Leia. So I think for me personally, I think that was a creative mistake. I think that, um, one of the, the benchmarks of this new trilogy is seeing a reunion of our, our favorite characters. 
And I think that that it's 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 beyond me why they decided to separate all of these characters because you when you when you have them all together that's the secret sauce right and for some reason like all of these characters are sprinkled now throughout the galaxy and it it just really doesn't make any sense it's like at the end of Return of the Jedi they're celebrating it's a right. jubilee um, right. Everybody's there's, together before the, the, the empire is, is defeated. Like, you know, there's going to be, you know, the, the, the largest threat is eliminated. Let's, you know, we can rebuild, yeah. regather. So when it comes to that, to hiding. yeah, yeah, it just doesn't make sense why they would all be so scattered like that. And I think it is due to the, the, like the, the, the treatment that they gave of, having this high level idea that, that there's kind of this melancholy vibe about the situation at hand and everybody's kind of in hide. It's, it, it just doesn't make any sense why they would do that after return of the Jedi. Um, not to mention the fact that, like I said, everybody wants to see these characters together. And the only time that we kind of sort of see it is when Han, Leia and Chewie briefly come back together. And that's probably one of the high points of episode seven. Number two, when he said he was a general around the same age as Finn and Poe, the argument that they were not established is not right. Poe had extensive knowledge of the resistance and had covered many battles for Leia. Finn was asked to help out Poe by Poe himself, and Poe asked Finn to be a co-leader because he wanted to help. Or or, or actually, he wanted help, excuse me. This shows that Poe understands that he was in over his head and needed help from the people that he trusted himself. So when it comes to that, I, I think in, in my situation, I look at how when we're introduced to Lando, he is a very capable leader in the sense that he's running Cloud City and Empire Strikes Back. Right. So he's, he's essentially the, the governor of that, that huge place. I mean, it's, it's not like it's some little village or a town. Like that, that is a, a massive structure that houses who knows how many beings and that sort of thing. So, and he, and even as the empire began to take over and, and, and threat and threaten to leave a garrison and everything else, he was very decisive. He was very quick on his feet, not to mention the fact that if you were to look at his so-called resume, if you will, even after the, the empire strikes back, he had been promoted through the Rebel Alliance in Return of the Jedi. So he was already on his way up to becoming like a general um, due to the fact that, that they were making the, the run on the second Death Star. So like his credentials <laughs> precede himself. Like, right. like he, he is more than capable and, and fit to be able to, to lead, not to mention that the, the amount of swagger, clout, and reputation that he has also go hand in hand in terms of being a leader. And I think it was just my personal opinion was that it was too convenient for um, a character like Finn to be like, or, or, or excuse me, Poe to say, Oh, well, okay, well I'm going to be in charge and Hey, Hey Finn, you want to help me out? Oh, okay, sure. You know, like I, it just right. it was too <laughs> like, no. Right. And, and my thing is that Poe is, is a very good fighter. That is very true. I agree. Right. Yeah. But being someone who's who's like a flyboy star pilot is very different from be, being someone in a position at like a general where you are really having to make tactical decisions. Right. And tough that, and hard to make decisions. Exactly. Anyway, let's see here. Number three, he wrote down. <clears throat> 
Uh, he did not really want to help out, but made his way back to the resistance because of Ray. And that, yeah, I remember that happening in the film. Number four, Lando had all his connections from when he was on Bespin, which makes sense as to why he was able to ask and get so many other uh, pilots out there helping with the resistance. That's true. I agree with that. Uh, he says, please don't get me wrong. I love the original trilogy and love all of those characters, but I am willing to see what Disney can do with the franchise. Is there going to be missteps? Yes. I mean, do you love all of the Marvel movies? I sure don't. Uh, and that's a good point. I agree with that too. Uh, Dr. Strange uh, was just Iron Man. Iron Man three was the absolute worst. Yeah. That, that part I do agree with. <laughs> uh, and I hated Baron Zemo from civil war. But do I love what they have done? And uh, uh, what does it say? Do I love what they have done in the overall stories that they are telling? Disney and Kathleen Kennedy will have some missteps, but overall, the story that they are telling, and I am happy to say uh, that they have something new rather than nothing at all. So I'll pause there for a second. And that's good. You know, I, I'm I'm glad that there are people who um, who are enjoying it. You know, I think that that's what is great about entertainment. You know, if, if there is if there's something that's there that that causes someone to have a good time and 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 they're enjoying themselves, then more power to them. I, I you know, I, I, it's not my place to say no. You shouldn't feel that way. So, uh, do you have anything to add to that or not? Uh, no, I mean, I, I agree. I, I still think that it's, it's, it's a lot more than a misstep. I mean, the entire Star Wars community is, is divided. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I can, I can accept a misstep and be like, oops, uh, that was, that was our mistake. Uh, sorry about that. Uh, we're going to, we're going to put this thing on pause and get back on the rails again. And, um, we'll, we'll have a lot better movie for you next time. And, um, even though they're in correction mode, I mean, it, it the community is still like way divided. I, I I just think they they completely mishandled mishandled the entire thing. I I I look forward to see what they they bring next. I mean, and yeah, I would like to see more Star Wars. That's a great point. I'd rather see more stuff happen in the Star Wars Star Wars world than nothing at all. And I, and I can really appreciate uh, PJ's positive attitude. I mean, I, I I'm loving it, but I just think it was a crazy lot more than just a misstep on, on Disney's end for sure. He continues on saying that, uh, this may be the way that I look at it because I have two wonderful kids that look at these characters as theirs and see the value of the ones that have come before. The last thing I, um, that I want to hit on is Ray slash Palpatine. I think that it was a great way for JJ Abrams to fix what Ryan Johnson did wrong from episode eight. To think that Palpatine was controlling everything from the shadows is, out, is an outstanding idea and makes you wonder what else he could have done um, or have had his hand into. In Battlefront 2, he was a clone that was controlling a robot. This shows that they could have brought him back earlier and were thinking about it back then. Ray being the granddaughter of Palpatine is great and helps explain why she could pick up a lightsaber and fly anything with no issue. Were you able to get behind Luke doing that in episode four? He just picked up the lightsaber with Obi-Wan and had no issue not cutting off his own hand. He also just jumped in an X-Wing and took out a Death Star. So I'll pause it right there. Um, I, you know, I actually, I, I, I think I even said this in, in, during a review. I agree with you. I think that 
the uh, the idea of her being Palpatine's granddaughter is actually a cool idea. I really dig it because up until this point, we've really had a lot of focus on the family dynamics on the Jedi side, but we haven't really explored much on the Sith. And the Sith up to this point has always been kind of these dark shadowy figures that come and they just want to wreak havoc and <laughs> death and everything else. Mark, and bad there's nothing bad sake. Yeah. Okay. Well, ex- yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's your classic good versus evil kind of storytelling. And it's like, yeah, no, I, I don't have a problem. But at the same time, it does make it more interesting to take on a kind of a twist like that. And I mean, let's be real. I could totally see Palpatine having some concubine honeys somewhere. And he's like, yeah, <laughs> The dark side I sense in you, you know, just all that kind of stuff. You know, he's he's by no means uh, clean as a preacher's sheets. You know what I'm saying there, Steve? <laughs> Did you have anything to add? Um, yeah, well, yes and no. I mean, I I don't know. I I think it was I was cool to see Palpatine. I think I said that in the in the episode a couple uh, weeks ago, but. Nothing was going to survive that blast at the end of Return of the Jedi. I mean, there was, I mean, if he could survive that, then he's going to survive whatever happens to him uh, and nothing's going to kill him. Um, I mean, that whole entire Death Star exploding, there's not, there's, <laughs> there's not even bacteria that's going to live. Um, what but, if he had a love fest the day before? Yeah. And then um, sent her on her merry little way. He's like, don't call me. I'll call you. Yeah. Um, but anyhow, even with, with Ray being his granddaughter, it, it almost it, there's a plot hole there because what happened? They, they did the Force just skip a generation because they were saying in the movie prior that Ray's parents were nobodies. So I guess we'll never know if they had any kind of Force abilities or not. Like I mean, if they were nobodies, then I don't see how Ray could have the gene or the ability and not like Palpatine's son or daughter or whoever it was. Um, you know, so well, that, but but we also don't know if they don't have it either. I mean, like they really left that up as as an unknown. Yeah, well, I mean, that's what I'm saying. It was it's just a plot hole. Well, but I don't necessarily think it is a plot hole per se. Like I could see it as a plot hole, but I also think too some of the fun things about these types of movies is you don't have to explain away every single solitary thing that comes up. I think it is fun to have certain items left unexplained because then it just allows you to kind of fill them in. I think there, there needs to be a kind of a, a surgical approach to it though, because you, you have to be careful which items you choose to be that way versus other ones you don't like. If you think of episode four, when Luke is talking with Obi-Wan Kenobi after he first meets him, you hear Ben Kenobi talk about where he doesn't really talk about it. He just kind of mentions it. He, he mentions the, the, the clone wars. In fact, Luke said you fought in the clone wars. Mm-hmm. And it was the coolest thing because it was just a, a fleeting mention of, of, of the Clone Wars that we would later on come to see in the prequels, which was the attack of the clones. Um, and so, I, you know, it wasn't like they had to fully explain that. And I think we saw the danger in episode one of over explaining things like, for instance, when Qui-Gon Jinn was talking to Anakin and Anakin's like, Master Jedi. I was wondering, what are midi chlorians? Yeah, and then right. you know, Quigon's like, "Well, Timmy, right. let me explain the scientific nature out." It's like, no, 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 you don't, you don't do that. <laughs> so he he wraps up here and he says, he also just jumped in an X-wing and took out a Death Star. Ray was on a scavenger planet and was able to learn about the different ships and had the Force with her. We even saw 
her take out bad guys with the boa staff that she was wielding. So it makes sense that she could use a lightsaber. If you look at the fight in her first encounter with Kylo Ren to the last fight at the end of episode nine, she is more graceful and controlled. Also in episode one, we saw that Anakin could build a robot at the age of nine and control a pod racer with no experience and win his first race. Also, we saw Anakin take out the droids in a fighter craft with no problem. So I feel that as long as we know someone has the force, then they will be able to control any machine that they want. Um, Okay, so this section is dealing with kind of just how invincible and OP Ray is as a character. And um, I still disagree. I, I, I feel I have the opposite view. I think that in movies like Star Wars, um, we, it, it's important to not allow the force to, to be uh, or, or possess this, this notion of instant gratification. Um, I do agree on the, the point that uh, Ray was not as refined in her lightsaber wielding skills from episode seven as opposed to episode nine. And I do appreciate that. But when it comes to just her overall, like, like she really, she had no flaw. She had no vice. And I, I stick to my guns on that one because Daisy Ridley was a fantastic casting choice. Her acting is great. And the look of it is really, really cool. My, my issue though is once again, it's not, she's as, as a character, she's not relatable because she can do no wrong. And not to mention the fact that everything that had to be really heavily earned as it applies to the force and the older films, she just kind of did on a whim and she had no fatigue. And you know, it, it goes, I, I use that, that classic example of how Luke, when he was being trained by Yoda how it really took a lot of focus and concentration for him to lift just a few rocks. And we, you know, we see in episode nine, how Ray is just kind of having fun being trained by land. She's got like 50 boulders and actually even in the, in the last Jedi before she was having some training by Leia, she was able to lift all those huge boulders from where the, the resistance was, were, were, you know, they were trapped and they were trying to get out. And I, you know, you're just like, no, like, like, that would absolutely decimate her. She probably would like fall unconscious for a bit. You know, there's just, I think that there, there is consequence to actions like that. And I think it's important to keep that in place just because you begin to trivialize the force. Otherwise, if if it becomes a participation trophy, and, and again, this leads into one of the points that PJ also made about how, um, Finn was force sensitive, you know, I think also that that was a mistake. I think that you run the, you know, you know the, the force itself is not just something that anybody can do. In fact, in, in the books and whatnot, they, they talk about this too, where, and actually Rogue One, the movie, they, they reinforce this notion where like people can know about the force, they can study it and everything else, like such as the blind man. But the force will be not with the force. The force will be not with the force. The force will be not with the force. Okay, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what I, what I thought was really cool about that in Rogue One was how you could have people who understood the, the power of the force and how important it is to have it in your life 
but he had no mastery of it. He he had no control over it. And I thought that was that made for a very interesting character. And I think if I were to compare that to what was going on in episode nine, at that point in time, it's like, you know, Finn has this thing. He he's dying to tell Ray over and over and over again. And people have deduced that, Oh, he's force sensitive. And I'm like, yeah, I don't buy it. I think that's too convenient and it needs to be a rarity. And the reason why I'll tell you why I want, I want all of you to listen carefully about this. Oh boy, here it goes. When it comes to the rarity of the force, it makes for a much more compelling visual spectacle when someone is actually capable of controlling it. If everybody is able to be force sensitive or manipulate the force in some way, shape or form. And again, I'm using that loosely. I don't, I don't mean to blanket statement because clearly they didn't do that in the films, but the more people who are able to manipulate and control the force, the less memorable or special the force is because now everybody, or let's say several people in the movie can do so rather than if you think of like in the original trilogy, it was only Yoda in empire strikes back. He's only in there in one film, um, except for like his little ghost image in return of the Jedi. But when you think of how Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker were the only ones and, you know, the, the emperor was in there, but he didn't really do anything with lightsaber and, and he had some lightning and stuff, that sort of thing. Fine. I'll give you that. But it was very sparse. It was very few and far between. And I think it's important to, to maintain something like that, because if you recall, too, in The Last Jedi, at the end, you know, they, they cut back to the little um, slave children or something that, that are on the casino island and. You could tell the boy is also force sensitive. He's able to just kind of pull the uh, the broom over to his hands before he starts sweeping out the the alien horse stall. Right. <laughs> so anyway, I just don't want the force trivialized. But PJ ended up ending the the email just um, saying thank you for all that you guys do. We do enjoy hearing a different view about movies, games, and pop topics. And to that, I say. It is an absolute pleasure to serve you, Mr. PJ, as well as you, Mr. Trenton, and all of our other fans and listeners that listen out there because uh, that's you know kind of the, the reason why we do this is we always love to be able to talk, shop, and geek out about these sorts of things. And I, for one, really like hearing different types of opinions and perspectives on things. And that's what it's all about, Ross's perspective, you know? Exactly. It's time for the topic of the day. of the day is what makes a good boss fight. This is a fun idea that we were talking about the other night. And what we want to do is, is just have fun talking about 
the different components that each of us feel go into uh, what makes a, a boss fight, for lack of a better word, good. So <laughs> bossy. we're gonna, yeah, bossy, <laughs> like a boss. So we also thought that we could um, give perhaps uh, a few examples of some of our our own personal favorite boss fights. But Steve. I am curious to hear your thoughts um, just from a, a high level understanding. What, what in your opinion makes for a good boss fight in any given video game? So I got a few thoughts, Russ. I would say to start off, I would say the, a balance of predictable and the unpredictable. So for example, uh, you can't have a boss that you go, you, you're watching and he goes, okay, after every three jumps, he's going to swing a sword and I'm going to duck and I'm going to miss it and I'm going to hit him. Okay, three more jumps and I'm going to duck and I'm going to swing and I'm going to hit him. Okay, there, you know, a lot of repetitive pattern. He has to be a bit, you know, but he can't be undefeatable. He can't be like completely like, you don't know what I'm going to do because otherwise it wouldn't be that fun to defeat the boss. So I would say a balance of the predictable and the unpredictable. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Are you picking up on throwing down? It does. I smell it. You're stepping in because I too have that on my list and I actually have labeled oh, no, it as don't. I do. I, I have labeled it as expect the unexpected. Oh. Continue. <laughs> I would say um, correct software written that applies to both hero and boss. So like, for example, uh, if you're jumping around trying to uh, dodge an attack and you can only jump up or you, you can only jump forward, but the boss can jump and then stop and then move backwards before he hits the ground. (laughs) Just because he's like programmed to hit you. If like he's in a certain parameter uh, between you and him, I'm like, wait, wait, hold on. What? Or, for example, if your hero is, um, if you're able to dodge, but if the boss is still, like, if he's doing a certain attack that's, like, unblockable and he's in reach, no matter if you can dodge or not, he's going to grab you and he's going to hurt you. And I think the worst example of that is probably, um, <laughs> the, this, is, this is dating myself, but when the Lord of the Rings came out and they made games on it, like the Lord of the Rings games, I th- you, yeah, I remember fighting, like, a bad Ent. I think it was. <laughs> and when the end reached for me, all my character could do was like stand there and freak out going, oh my gosh, I'm going to get picked up by this thing and I'm going to you know, get hurt. And so there was nothing I could do, even though dodge and slash and, and uh, jump were all these commands, I couldn't do anything and every single time. So anyhow, wasn't limited to that game, but uh, I'm just thinking if we're gonna all going to be in this world and exist like we would in the matrix where all rules apply to everybody sort of unless you break some rules of course but man that was a bad example i don't know um i just think the software needs to apply hey if you're going to program one person to jump and they can't stop in midair to reverse their uh their momentum then neither can the boss makes sense it makes sense, but I don't know if I agree with that. Just because mm. part of being a boss is that they're naughty. You know, they don't play by the rules. They make up their own rules, and it's up to you to vanquish them regardless. I would say 
the type of boss that can exhibit your level of badassery. So the hero ain't nothing without the villain, but if you can be the tiny little bugger and you're taking on Goliath and you can take him down because you've mastered your art and your skill and you know, you have your, your counterattacks down and your dodges down um, and it's inspiring and confidence building that, to say that I started from nothing. And <laughs> I started from nothing. And then <laughs> I got to you and then you're everything that was threatening me. And now I'm the one who's beating you up. I'm the little, I'm the little guy. I'm the, I'm the little dog who's taking on the big dog and I'm making him look like a fool in front of his friends. You know what I mean? Yeah. So what you're talking about is, is uh, as long as the, the gameplay mechanics are fair in the sense that whatever kind of move list that you are given, if you are able to master it, then you're able to take out whichever kind of boss you're fighting. That makes for a, a good boss. A yeah, good boss absolutely. I mean, you could, you could, uh, you can see the, the, the villain as a, a huge threat and you're thinking, Oh man, here we go. You know, <laughs> we're going to lock horns. Uh, but it has to be, it has to be, a level of okay. Here's where I started. Here's where I'm I'm finishing. And even though the boss is big, Mister Big Buff Rough and stuff, and now here's little old me, <laughs> and I'm taking him down. Exactly. Not not. I'm not saying like you just got to be like simple. I'm just saying that um, there's got to be enough to let me spread my wings of badassness. Of course. Did you have anything else? Yes, one last thought, Russ. I would say oh. a good boss fight needs to have a level of magnificence. Oh. So the boss can't all just be ugly. He can't just like, you know, every boss can be like, I oh, want him no. dead sexy. <laughs> no, <laughs> actually, what I was thinking of is uh, like a lot of the bosses in Castlevania, Lords of Shadow, are actually a spectacle to look at. I mean, yes. they, they are rather beautiful. I mean, I looked forward to the boss fights um, and they were difficult to say the least, but um, I mean, one, one boss fight that uh, sticks out in particular was um, there. You are at this castle, but there was a lot of bridges that you had to cross that were very, mm-hmm. very high up. I remember yeah. I called you right after this happened and I was, and it was probably a night you were, um, uh, Wanted to make sweet love to your wife, but I called you anyway. Anyway. Um, what? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think I was married when you were playing it. I don't know. Maybe you were. Maybe you were. I, I don't know. <laughs> Anyhow. This comment brought to you by Left Field. <laughs> And so anyhow, um, you had to defeat like this, uh, like crow kind of creature, but it was a bunch of crows and the one crow and it had a bunch of black mist. I mean, it looked. Oh yeah. yeah. Fantastic. And I mean, I almost felt sorry for taking the thing down, um, but I had to do what must be done. Uh, but anyhow, I, I loved all the boss fights and I just think that, you know, a boss fight is, is, should be an absolute spectacle to, to, to fight in. No, it's 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 good that you brought up um, Castlevania Lords of Shadow because I actually have that in, in my list as well. So, um, was there anything else, Steve? 
Well, I can give you some examples, Russ. Well, here, let me let me go into a little bit of, of my high level before we get into the, the samples here, because I, 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 I'm glad to hear a lot of what you're saying there, Steve. Uh, I wrote down a few things here. One about what I feel makes a good boss fight is the showmanship. And I think that that is similar to what you were describing, where I like my boss fights to have, you know, if you think about the, the ones that are memorable, there is a certain level of flair, right? There is a certain level of, you know, it's, it's this, this huge spectacle and they almost do that in a way to intimidate and to cause you to doubt yourself and your abilities. And so I, I definitely look for showmanship in a good boss fight. The second thing is, is, is similar to what you were talking about, whereas I like to have bosses that test my skill. And I like how, it, like in a game that is filled with bosses, I think it's fantastic if with every boss that you come across, they test your skills in a different capacity. And if you're able to overcome that, it's like, okay, now you can move forward. So the, uh, the third thing is also what you had mentioned, which is um, expect the unexpected. I think that especially um, in recent times, there have been a really neat analysis of boss creations, so to speak. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But I, I feel as though there was... Um, there was this renaissance of awesome epic boss fights that happened during kind of like the eight bit, 16 bit era. And then they began to kind of fall by the wayside a little bit. Like you still had like certain really good boss fights during 32 bit and 64 bit, that sort of thing. But I feel as though within the Xbox 360, PS3, PS4, Xbox one, we have actually seen a resurgence of a lot of really um, intuitive. Well, not really intuitive. I'm sorry. More of like a, I don't know, a novel approach to how these bosses um, look and how they act, how they engage you, how you have to figure them out. It's not so much like, oh, look, there's a shiny part on their body. You have to hit that over and <laughs> yeah, over and over shoot again. shoot the blanky part. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but I, I also think, too, that it's important to, sh to introduce never-before-seen gameplay mechanics. And I think that, that that's kind of what we just said is like, you know, kind of one of the old classic ways was like, hey, shoot the big shiny glowy part. That's what you need. And, you know, it, it worked for the time and it was really popular in arcades in the 80s and that sort of thing. But I'm really happy to see how it's evolved since then. And uh, finally, one of, the, one of the other components to this is um, I like, I think that, that what makes a good boss fight is one that actually helps to propel the narrative of the overall story forward. Even though like you're, you may not be fed exposition necessarily, or maybe you are, maybe like you, you whittle down the health bar to a point where then some uh, dialogue gets said or whatever it is. But I think that that's also really cool. So Steve, please tell me some examples of some of your favorite boss fights <clears throat> that supports these notions. Well, for example, um, the last boss in Final Fantasy VII. So you've you've gathered all your little spells, you've leveled up, you've you've heard about the 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 last boss for the longest time. The game is epic. It's you know, and you finally get there, 
and they create like this opera song specifically for <laughs> the last boss. And that, granted, this is PS1. This is not even like PS2. PS1. And so I'm listening to this opera. This boss is huge. And yes, it's still turn-based combat. But I'm looking at it thinking, okay, I've spent like over 100 hours in this game. And I know I'm tough, but I don't even know if I could take this thing down. But the entire experience has given me goosebumps, and I don't want it to end. And even if it did end with me dying, I still wouldn't have a problem. There would be no rage quitting. It would, you know, it would just be like me. I can't wait to go defeat this boss again. And even after that boss, there was interactive cinematic sequences and just a huge reward. And, um, you know, it, it was it had everything. It had the whole formula. It had the unpredictability. It had balance. Um, it, it, it allowed me to, to exhibit my confidence of my, the abilities that I had gained throughout the entire adventure. And it was it had the, the, a huge level of, of magnificence. It, it had the entire formula. Yeah, I. that was the one where I could go in and make myself a sandwich and come back when you were doing one of your ultimates, right? It took like five minutes. Actually, no. That one was Final Fantasy VIII. So what the one you're thinking of, and I actually have an example for Final Fantasy VIII too, but uh, the one you're thinking of is, yeah, I probably, I probably was the last boss there, but um, a way to take him down quick was to use the most powerful spell in the game and but first you would you would cast a reflex spell on your entire team. So whatever hit your team would reflect um, not just once, but like three times. And so each turn <laughs> you cast the, the most powerful spell in the game three times. And so <laughs> if you had every character equipped with it, then it was just that spell over and over and over again. And Final Fantasy VIII, they had <laughs> quite like the cinematic experience when you casted a, a, a very strong spell, like it literally was about a minute and a half of you watching that same spell happen over and over and over again. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I think you actually like, I'm going to get a snack because this is the second time you've cast the same spell <laughs> and it's a minute and a half. That allow me to go into the kitchen, get the bread, get the peanut butter, get the jelly. Uh, maybe by the third time you do a spell, I'll be having the bread together and come back in and join you. And that's pretty much what happened. Yeah, that was nuts. Uh, well, one of the ones that um, I always have, I, I actually have this um, as a special place in my uh, gaming heart of hearts, is Psycho Mantis from the original Metal Gear Solid game. And I think you were watching this with me uh, in the back in the old days when we were playing at uh, mom and dad's on the family room floor with those huge oversized pillows. But um, if you recall, um, it, at one point it looks like like he had taken control of your um, your ally Meryl and almost um, having you kill her, and and then he starts to mess with your mind. And I thought from a game design standpoint, it was, it was really cool because um, he taunts you by telling you that you play too many games. And if you recall, he actually lets you know what games you've been playing. Um, not, not that like, it was like, I don't think it showed like every single game that you've played on the PlayStation, but I think it was like for every Konami game you had played, it would actually list it on the screen. Do you remember that? No. Yeah, it was super cool. Like, like 
um, apparently they hit like in the code or something like that, they, they were able to read the contents of the, the PS memory card and any kind of ID tag that had, you know, a Konami game on there, it, it brought it up, which I thought was really slick. It was a really neat idea. And then he tells you, um, do you remember like when he, when he tells you to, or told me when I was, I was, when I was playing it, um, like you, uh, place the controller down on the floor to show you how powerful he is. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. Like that was insane. I had never experienced that, um, ever in, in a game before. And, it's, it's like, if you remember, if you recall, you put the controller down and then he proceeds to rattle it around, you know, psychically, basically. And then the, the, the battle begins, um, where like you have to do this a few more times. And, and, uh, and you, and I remember like, I, I remember I was dying over and over and over and I wasn't sure, like, like, how was I supposed to beat this guy? And then suddenly you, you have to figure out that you have to unplug the controller from port one and place it into port two, effectively making it impossible for him to, to quote, read your mind. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do actually. Yeah. And he was like super easy to take out after that. Um, but I mean, it, it was such an aha re- revelation, uh, you know, in the sense that like, like I had never ever experienced a game like that where, they actually took the time to leverage the hardware technology of the PlayStation system itself into a boss fight and have it be something like that, that I mean, I mean, as far as I know, I don't think there's ever been another fight quite like that. I think that's, that has always been one of my top special boss fights that I'll never forget. And I think honestly, I'd love to see more of that going on, especially with the types of options that are available in today's consoles and, and the next gen. Yeah. I, it makes me think of, uh, I remember there was a game on, ah, nuts. I probably shouldn't even bring it up cause I can't remember the name of it, but there's a game on GameCube that really screwed with your mind a bit where, um, <laughs> the the boss literally made you think that the game had crashed, and so oh, you're thinking of uh, I think it's called Eternal Darkness, right? I I still remember what that what the what the, the title of the game is, but um, basically, um, yeah, I mean, so you would sometimes get that blue screen of death where like one of the chips in the cartridge or <laughs> one of the hardware boards was corrupt or bad, <laughs> so you get this blue screen like uh, the BIOS needs to be completely reset or you know, I remember that you're like oh crap like right in the middle of this game this game like totally ruined my system, um, and actually that was <laughs> software like screwing with you, and uh, other stuff happened too. I don't remember, but I remember that part for sure. Yeah, it was called Eternal Darkness, and the the idea was was that you, the protagonist, the main character you were playing as, was slowly, you know, at times w- w- would slip into madness, and it would happen very slowly and subtly, and you wouldn't really notice things at first. But the farther they slipped, um, the worse things got to the point where the developers had actually created. I can't remember how many there had to have been, at least twenty different ways that they would mess with you. Because I, I remember there was one in particular where um, like, I, I remember the, the blue screen that you talked about and that freaked, I mean, even my, my girlfriend at the time and I we were playing and that really freaked both of us out thinking that like, Oh no, the system is like just completely just corrupted or whatever, but it wasn't the one that got me though, was we were playing the game 
And all of a sudden I see a fly that landed on the TV. It was like kind of like in the corner and stuff. And it was like moving around. And so I got up off the sofa to get up and go and shoo the fly off the TV screen. And when I got up to the TV, I realized it was part of the game. <laughs> Didn't they have something too, where they screwed with the, like the hue and all the colors and everything. Oh and yeah. So like, and it wasn't just, Oh, we're changing the, you game from red to blue or to green. It was almost, it literally looked like you would see the green bar. I think, you know, like on a Magnavox TV or something, you would see the bar, like the same bar as if you, you grab your TV remote and you clicked on there to adjust the settings on your TV. It looked really like the same. If it wasn't the same, it looked really like just, just too close. Uh, uh, but it would start to adjust like your TV settings and it would look literally like, your TV was doing it on its own. Yeah, no, the, there were, gosh, there, there were, there were quite a few of them. I'm trying to remember the one that, that you're describing. I kind of remember that one. Um, it was, it was a while ago. Do you remember any of the other ones? No, no, that was it. I remember the fly one though. Cause I remember you telling me about it. Yeah. Cause I think, uh, let's see. I actually, I, I just lo I, I looked it up here. Um, yeah, so there's the blue screen of death. These are the visual screen environmental effects of when your, your sanity meter reaches too low or whatever. Um, you have blood will drip from the walls or ceiling. Paintings will change appearance. I remember that heads of statues will follow your movements. Yeah, I remember that the game will appear to delete your saved game. I remember that. I remember that freaking me out because I was like, what the heck? That was, that was crazy too. Uh, yeah. Bugs will crawl across the screen. Um, nails will scratch across the screen. I don't know if I ever saw that. This is the one I just told you about. A fly will buzz around the screen. Uh, oh, the television will appear to have turned off. <laughs> Room specific objects will float in the air. Um, yeah, entire sequences of, of play will turn out to be a hallucination, reverting to a prior point in play. That's crazy. Right. Yeah. Yeah, there, there, there's, and there are other things too where, uh, oh my gosh, there's a ton of stuff they did in here. So like that, the ones I was, I were talking about was just the visual, like, like, like your TV screen, environmental effects. They have more where, um, and again, this is, this is digressing a little bit off because these are not necessarily boss oriented things, but um, yeah, these are just too cool not to talk about like the, you know, for control and character effects, a message appears alerting you that controller one is not connected. <laughs> Your character will grow larger or smaller during movement. I remember that the environment will be upside down and you will walk on the ceiling. I remember that, actually the character's body will break <clears throat> apart as you walk. Casting spells will cause you to explode. <laughs> anyway, it goes on and on. And there's even audio effects too, where the audio will all of a sudden just mute. <laughs> uh, crying, whispering can be heard in the background. Yada, yada, knocking, creaking floor. Yeah, you may hear. Da, da, da. So anyway, yeah, super cool game. And yeah, it, it, there is a, a little bit of a, a parallel with that with regards to Psychomantis. But what is another boss that you have listed there, Steve? So anyhow, I, so I mentioned Final Fantasy VIII. I might as well just go into it. <clears throat> this was the, I forgot what the boss name was, but this is basically the end of the first act of the game where 
uh, you know, you're you're starting to play the game, and that you're you're the game itself had a lot more color to it, and the graphics were better, and the the spells looked better, and the sound was better. Everything was 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 took a, a notch up, and as you're trying to exit this uh, military compound that you're that you're on, this uh, this kind of spider robot. There always seems to be a spider robot in Final Fantasy, but anyway. <laughs> What's the deal with spiders and robots? I don't know. Keeps following you. Know, it's almost like the, if the Terminator was a, a very bulky spider that was about 10 times your size uh, with cannons and laser beams attached to its head. Uh, kept, oh, yes. Kept coming after you. And it had like these self-healing uh, uh, aspects to it. And you just couldn't kill the thing. And... I, if I remember correctly, in the game, you only had so much magic. Like before, your your character was exhausted and just couldn't do any more magic. And I'm going, okay, I'm I'm literally done. I've wiped out my health potions. I'm getting low on magic. Like what what's going on? Because I I think you had to take like an ether or something before you can get more magic. And I was running close to like well, I don't know what else to do. And there were sequences where you would you would hurt the boss, and then they're like, "Okay, he's defeated. Go ahead and go." And so you'd go, and then he would pop up again, and you're like, "Oh man!" And then, you know he would look kind of broken, but he would kind of heal himself, and you're and and that kept happening again, and again, and again, and again. I'm like, and finally, I'm I'm on the beach, and I'm about to board this military boat, and I'm trying to escape the thing. I just want to leave. I'm like, how do I fight this thing? I'm going to die. And it was this pretty intense moment. I mean, it was really well written. But then one of my little crew members, like, breaks away from my party. I'm like, what's going on? Jumps in the military boat and brings up this huge turret. No, well, it wasn't huge, about, you know, regular-sized turret, but it started just peppering this thing as much as they could to allow me to get away and um, finally, this, this boat, which would looked really cool, too, could jump in the water, too. That's pretty cool. Anyway, uh, we escaped by the, the skin of our chin, the chin, chin. <clears throat> and oh. um, I've actually gone back on YouTube to watch people uh, defeat that boss again and again because it's really cool to watch uh, and to play and, uh, and to turn up very loud. Right on. Uh, another example I have here is actually Thunderjaw from Horizon Zero Dawn. I don't know if you're familiar with with which uh, creature this is, but this this was essentially kind of the cyborg T Rex. Yeah, I figured it'd be a T Rex. There you go, new. Well, um, yeah, this was uh, actually that there were several, and what was interesting is that this this game is was unique in the sense that they didn't really have bosses per se where like, you know, you, you, Oh, you've gotten to a boss and you vanquish the boss and you go on to the next level. But what they did instead was they had this very live lived in organic environment. And as you were able to reach and traverse certain areas that were perhaps unreachable or untraversable, that you could find some of these uh, very high tech, almost like tomb like places where you'd go in and you'd see one being constructed. And it was like kind of like the first time you'd see it. And then if you were successful in defeating it, then you were able to actually find it kind of more and more prevalent out in the open of, of this, this huge uh, vast landscape. But so I thought it was always cool because with, with regards to the thunder jaw, it, re- it goes down my list where the showmanship side of things, I mean, it, it was so big and 
every 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 time every encounter I had with it, even though it got easier, it still felt like this life or death situation where you had to really be on your toes. You had to utilize different arrows in your quiver, and you had to utilize different traps and stuff in order to take it down. And it was it was all like I never once got bored with with having to fight one of those things throughout the game. And the game is pretty long, right? And when when it came to you know testing your skill, I mean, it did. Definitely the first time I was playing, I mean, I was like, wow, this is insane. But it it really had a lot of that with virtually every new type of cybernetic creature that you came across. But the Thunderjaw was definitely, for me, it took the cake. And in terms of expecting the unexpected, it had all kinds of weapon systems on there. And also discovering the fact that like I, I could knock off certain weapon systems and use them against the thunder jaw. There, there were a lot of really well thought out game design decisions when it came to this type of combat. And that goes right into my fourth thing was introduced never before seeing gameplay mechanics. You know, that's, I do think that utilizing a, a boss's uh, weapon or some, some sort of, accessory against it is not necessarily new. I think it has been done on, on other types of boss fights, but I was really glad to see the organic approach in horizon zero dawn for this. And it, you know, if, if you see that in other boss fights, that's what makes in my opinion, a good boss fight. There you go. So, um, and of course too, when you look at these different creatures, it did help to propel the narrative, even though they didn't speak English, it was still, it was helping to, to drive and I'm not going to spoil it, but the further you got, it really did um, play directly into what the overall, what the overarching story was about. Uh, Steve, back to you. Well, my last example, uh, being sensitive to time here, Russ. Uh huh. Um, I would say the first boss, which kind of goes a little bit against uh, what I, what I say, uh, my formula, but, the first boss in The Wicker. Because if you remember the trailers to the game, they actually show the boss and they show you defeating the boss. And you're like, okay, I'm used to watching game cinematics on screen where that that may or may not happen in the game, but most likely it's not. They're just trying to make it look cool for marketing purposes. But then the very first part of the game... You play, you, you're fighting that creature like, I'm just learning how to walk <laughs> and not like constantly run into things. <laughs> and now I have to fight this huge entire creature knowing magic and blocking and using spells and using bait to, to, to make sure this creature gets to where I need it and traps and... <laughs> Like, what do I do? What do I do? But this is totally like not on topic, but I, for one, would love if there was one, just a, just a moment during the Witcher Netflix show where Henry Cavill just starts walking into a wall as if he was being controlled by a character and they can't figure out how to get through the door. Anyway, <laughs> or he just starts, <laughs> he just keeps on like rolling continuously, like one roll one way, stand up yeah. and then like roll the other way, stand up and then roll the, like, what is he doing? Getting hey, muddier and game? dirtier. <laughs> he, <laughs> he, looks at, he looks at all like the, the screen staff. He's like, this happens in the game. Haven't you guys ever played it? Like the, this happens all the time. Every boss fight. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I need the stuff 
<laughs> massive quantities of apples and fish and breads and cheeses down my pants so I can eat them at any given time and regain my health. Exactly. <laughs> or, or like he'll be running straight into some big battle and nothing but a loincloth. cloth. Right. <laughs> like what? <laughs> anyway. Um, so yeah, just in the sake of time, I'll, um, uh, I have some, uh, a few other examples here that I'll just kind of, uh, I'll roll into something, but, um, so Sekiro, of course, that was I my knew you were going to mention that one. Indeed. It was my game of the year pick for 2019 and rightfully so just because every single boss fight that was in there was completely epic. It was meticulously crafted and designed in such a way that it forced you to get good at every turn. And it was done so in a way that I've never experienced before in terms of the intensity. Not only that though, when it came to the showmanship, every single boss had its very exclusive own sense of showmanship. And it, like I can, I can easily remember each battle that I had because of that. It certainly tested my skill um, in terms of expecting the unexpected. I didn't know what to expect. Every time I came across a new boss, I'm thinking, what the heck is going on? And it was a joy ride to be able to, to go through all that because it was, again, it was so well thought out. And of course, when you think of introducing never before seeing gameplay mechanics, that was another thing too, where it wasn't just me. If you look on YouTube and you see people playing different bosses from Sekiro, they, we all have a collective same type of response, which is interesting because the responses themselves are unique to what happens with each one of the boss fights. It's not like we have the same response for every boss fight in Sekiro. And so it was really fun to be able to see that and go, okay, yeah, I wasn't the only one who struggled with that. And oh yeah, I wasn't the only one who was shocked by that. And so it, it was super cool and it, it definitely propelled the narrative of the story. So I thought that was certainly neat. Uh, one other one I was going to talk about, and you actually mentioned it earlier, was Castlevania Lords of Shadow, where there are several types of boss fights in there that I think meet the same type of criteria. And ultimately, um, I think it's just, it, for, for you and I anyway, it is ingrained in our, our psyche and, and, and geekery, so to speak, of just when you think of, of those different boss fights, whether it was like Satan at the end and that was like a huge thing, or if you were taking on the, the, the werewolf king, or if you were taking on the, the, I don't know if it was called a Titan or what, but it was like that thing that was made of all those rocks and stuff. And you had to climb up its hand and arm and leg and stuff. And it just, it was so massive in scale. So, and, and there are more out there, believe me, there, there are a lot of other types of boss fights that whether they're from the eight bit, 16 bit days, like Mega Man, Mega Man had a lot of really cool boss fights and, and others. But I think what's really important to, to also mention is that Steve and I would love to hear your thoughts on which um, boss fights were memorable to you. And if you have any kind of uh, thoughts or comments about what you think goes into making a good boss fight, you should drop us a line on either Twitter or Facebook or any of the other social media platforms. But um, 
that wraps up this episode of Joygasm. Make sure you tune in next week when we review Bad Boys for Life, the movie. Thanks for hanging out with us. If you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to check out patreon.com slash joygasm. That's spelled J-O-Y-G-A-S-M. And consider becoming a monthly contributor. You'll get exclusive perks and early access to the show, not to mention it really helps us continue doing what we love to do. Also, you can follow us on social media and YouTube. Just do a search for Joygasm TV. Last but not least, search Joygasm TV on Twitch to see us stream our gaming adventures every Wednesday night.